and welcome to Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Dorinda Sharp. And I'm Colin Hesse. On this episode, Michael Green, a professor at Texas A&M University School of Law, talks with Dorinda about his research on retaliation against the Black Lives Matter movement in the workplace. Green was on campus in April of 2018 as part of the Law School Speaker Exchange. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Professor Green. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. You'll speak to our faculty, and I understand your topic is retaliating against Black Lives Matter in the workplace. It is. Yes, that is my topic. Hopefully it'll be one that uh, is a little bit provocative, a little bit interesting, a little bit scholarly. I kind of like to be all things to all people when I can. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I research and write about employment law. Most of my scholarly agenda focuses on dispute resolution in the workplace and race. So the Black Lives Matter movement um, has become a specific focus of mine lately in terms of how it has permeated the workplace and how uh, incidents have arisen and how employers have responded to um, discussions about Black Lives Matter in the workplace. So um, my paper really talks about um, issues that black workers face. Um, I'll start off by talking about some of the disparities in our society and in the workplace for black workers. Um, And that's actually a a not so minor component of of the talk, uh, just to frame the issue. And then I'll get specifically into Black Lives Matter issues that have arisen. Um, A lot of this stems from, and most people uh, in our our society now are pretty much aware of the uh, NFL football player Colin Kaepernick and um, his decision to take a knee during the national anthem. Um, But some people don't realize the reasoning for that. And it is consistent with a lot of the issues in the Black Lives Matter movement that he has tried to raise concerns about. And so I will then discuss some of the stuff regarding Colin Kaepernick, but just in a broader aspect, all of the issues that have arisen in the workplace where people have tried to discuss Black Lives Matter either in a positive way or a negative way and how employers are really struggling with how to respond. Should they take disciplinary action? Should they not? and kind of make some suggestions about it in terms of what I call protecting uh, black workers from retaliation um, for discussing Black Lives Matter. It's interesting. I hope so. How did you, how, what moved you into that subject? So, um, so as I mentioned before, because I am a, uh, a scholar who focuses on workplace disputes, um, and in particular from the aspect of race. Um, I just wrote two articles which kind of lead me to this next point. Um, I wrote an article that was in the uh, SMU Law Review. Both of these were published in December. 
Okay. I wrote an article in the SMU Law Review where I was looking at issues of prejudice based upon uh, the use of alternative dispute resolution in the workplace and how informality um, may raise questions of workplace justice based on race. Um, so while looking at that and exploring the implications of either using mediators or arbitrators um, and even negotiation, I have a, uh, I wrote a chapter to a book that was also published in December. December is a pretty big month for publishing that's called Negotiating While Black, where I had highlighted a number of issues in the workplace for individuals based upon being black and difficulties that they experienced from negotiating basic things in the workplace. So that article uh, played a role. And then another article published in December of 2017, um, which I call the, the Audacity of Protecting Racist Speech under the National Labor Relations Act, involves a case primarily that had occurred a couple of years ago where employees on a picket line had said some very racist statements to employees who had crossed the picket line who tended to be African-American and how the National Labor Relations Board under the National Labor Relations Act found that to be protected activity and the employer cannot take disciplinary actions against them. Um, so those two articles kind of frame some of the things that I was already looking at mm -hmm. in terms of racist communications in the workplace, how to deal with them. And as part of that research, I started coming across a lot of issues regarding Black Lives Matter. Um, and in fact, the SMU article, I even listed Black Work Matters as part of the title um, in terms of the prejudice issues. Now I'm moving into what are the responses that employers can make when these discussions come up so that they don't retaliate against black workers who want to raise these issues. It's interesting timing given the Me Too movement and addressing you know, issues of sex and gender in the workplace and then addressing racism in the workplace. At the, it's, it's interesting that those are converging at the same time. It, it is, and in fact, I believe uh, generally in terms of some of the suggestions that I've made in, in, in a couple of those articles and what I'll do when I finish my research in this, I'm pretty sure of, is that uh, historically most of the suggestions have been uh, legal. Mm -hmm. um, let's let's go to Congress or let's go to the courts to try and resolve some of these issues and how people are being treated or how people of color and women are being subordinated, especially in the workplace. Um, given our more recent history in terms of how the courts have dealt with those issues, how our Congress has failed to deal with those issues, uh, you need to look for other ways to address these things. And I believe that movements are the real way to address these things in the future. And in fact, it's movements that probably started all of this before. It's the labor movement that led to the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s. 
It's the women's rights movement that led to some of the voting issues and some of the equal rights amendment issues that are percolated in the 70s. It's the civil rights movement that led to many, to Title VII and many of our laws in the 60s. And now we have new movements that are cropping up. Uh, it may be a perfect storm of events that is making that happen right now. But uh, we are seeing movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too that are really hopefully going to change the landscape. And even the most, most recent movements you see with these uh, students who are addressing gun violence. So you, you see these powerful movements starting to crop up. And it's, it's being led by a lot of the newer generations who are the people who are really ultimately going to be in charge 10, 15, 20 years from now and making a difference in what goes on in our society. So as a, as a legal scholar, someone's concerned about workplace issues, um, coming across the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and especially since I read about race and workplace dispute issues, it was kind of a perfect fit for me to kind of explore that a little more. That makes sense. Well, speaking of younger generations and forming them to be leaders, what took you into academia? So um, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting thing. In fact, I've written an article that's kind of autobiographical, too, um, and it's in the Columbia Journal of Gender. Um, and it talks about, it's called Just Another Little Black Boy from the South Side of Chicago. Um, how, so how did I get into all of this? Um, I grew up on the South Side of Chicago in a community that is one of the more challenged communities in the country, not just in the Chicago area, uh, Inglewood. And in fact, uh, movies have been made about it, referred to Chirac and things of that nature. And so being a only child, a black male growing up with, in a household with five women all older than me, um, it shapes me, and it's, it, it shaped me, and it continues to shape me in terms of my thinking, my concerns, uh, the things I'm worried about. Um, and so as I went to um, undergrad, I went to the University of Southern California. I was pushed into becoming an engineer. Um, a lot of people think that's interesting. They don't realize I was an engineer. Um, but uh, at the time, when you looked at um, ways in which people of color could, who had good grades, could seek the best uh, economic positions, I mean, engineering is probably the best paying job with just an undergraduate degree. And so, uh, in, in retrospect, I, I, note, I note this in the article, in retrospect, I wondered why I was being pushed into that because I had pretty much straight A's in every subject except for science. Um, <laughs> I, I did well in science, but it just wasn't straight A's. But So at some point I knew, probably about my sophomore year, engineering wasn't going to be long term for me. And I took a class that was supposed to be called Civil Engineering Specifications, but it was really an introduction to law course. And I knew that was much more interesting to me and something I wanted to pursue, but I was halfway down the path of getting my engineering degree. And when I graduated, I started to go along a, 
not not so traditional route for an engineer in that I got hired by Procter and Gamble as a manager, a manufacturing manager. And eventually in that position, I supervised over 30 people who were all electricians and mechanics and just learned so many things about workplace issues and as a supervisor and documenting things and dealing with all the various things that go in the workplace. And it absolutely fascinated me. Um, and I documented some things, and I asked, well, what's going to happen to this? And they said, the lawyers are going to handle that. And I said, well, I'd like to be one of those lawyers <laughs> one day. So I eventually went to Loyola, Chicago, came back home. I was in California after going to the University of Southern California and then working in Procter & Gamble for a few years, decided to come back home. And for some reason, I guess I was always destined to be involved in education. I started off thinking, what can I do to stay out of school the <laughs> so that I can get the least amount of education? So I go get an engineering degree thinking, I'll get that, make money, I'll never have to go back to school. But when I worked for Procter & Gamble, they paid for me to get my MBA at night as a manager. And then I decided, let's, let's do this. Let's go full blast with the interest in law and actually, I went and got another degree. I was in a dual degree program at Loyola, Chicago, where I got a master's in human resources and industrial and labor relations, along with my JD. And wow. that was intended because I knew that I wanted to deal with workplace law issues, that that was what fascinated me. That's why I was going to law school. And I was fortunate enough after law school to, and while in law school, to get jobs working for, I worked for a labor union firm for uh, about a year and a half. I worked for a couple of management firms doing employment law. I worked for a, a really a, a great boutique firm in the Chicago area that had about 30 attorneys that did all kind of labor and employment law for managers. And while I was doing that, I started to become an adjunct teaching labor law. And I loved that. And I said, now so I can see where my next uh, career goals are going. And I decided I wanted to be a law professor. And I got some coaching from some of the faculty members at, at Loyola. And they gave me some advice. and. It's a very, very challenging process that you go through to become a, a law professor. And I eventually decided and had heard about this great program at the University of Wisconsin uh, called the Hasty Fellowship. And I ended up applying and uh, getting involved in that program. And uh, that probably changed my life in terms of now my new career um, of being a, a law professor who focuses on workplace dispute resolutions and race. Um, and at Wisconsin, it was such a, such a great environment, lots of people who are still, uh, still know today. In fact, uh, the dean at Arkansas was, uh, Stacy Leeds, was a hasty fellow uh, with me at the time, uh, at the same time. In fact, the, when I was at Wisconsin, some reason they had this big overload. Usually you only have one or two hasty fellows at one time. There were five of us. Wow. Um, and it's, it's really some really fascinating and great people 
who are out there at law schools uh, now. You know, you have Stacy, who's the dean, who's the dean here at Arkansas. Um, our current interim dean, uh, Thomas Mitchell, he was a Hasty Fellow at the same time too. He was at Wisconsin for many years and just joined our faculty at Texas A&M last year. Uh, Michelle Goodwin, who was a Hasty Fellow, is now at UC Irvine and uh, is doing great, great things there. And then Adele Morrison, who is at uh, Wayne State. Uh, so we had all five of us all there at one time. So just a really great environment to learn. And as some people say, for me to get my fifth, fifth degree in LLM um, and then go on to become a law professor. Well, since you do spend so much time with students and in the classroom, I was wondering what advice you might have for current students. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the things, I, I have this title now, and I'm not even sure what it really means, but I'm called the director of our workplace law program. Okay. And I view that as looking for people like me. Um, it's hard. There are not a lot of people, weird people out there like me. <laughs> but I'm looking for students who have this fascination with the workplace and want to practice law in that area. So in terms of those students, we have a student association that we formed. And my real thrill, I teach these classes. And of course, I love the teaching the classes and interacting with the students. But I really, really enjoy seeing them uh, achieve their goals and, and reach their dreams. Uh, I just had one of the student, uh, a student who's a third year and she had worked for the National Labor Relations Board in the summer. And she had an offer, but she wasn't really sure. She really wanted to do labor law, and she she just wasn't coming across the right folks. And I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time and put her in touch with a labor union attorney, pretty prominent labor union attorney in the Fort Worth area. And he immediately, once he met her, he, he made her a job offer, and that's where she's going to work. So those are the kind of really uh, rewarding things in terms of my interactions with the students. When I see someone like that who's been such a great student, so determined to want to practice in this area, and then finds themselves in a job, um, that's really the best thing to me, the most rewarding kind of things to me. Uh, as a law professor my interactions with the students. One of the things that struck me in your bio was <laughs> you said you had become en enchanted with workplace issues. And I thought yeah. that was... Yeah, I, hope, I hope hopefully now you understand what yes, that means. exactly. Uh, that was, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are very few of you enchanted with workplace issues. Well, the other thing I tell my students, like for, for my exams, I think sometimes they think that I'm a pretty difficult uh, exam writer. And I tell them, I write my exams. And some of this comes from my background as an engineering student. Uh, when you're an engineering student, and I, I probably still have nightmares about this, but as an engineering student, you take physics at a major university, most of the time, you have four problems. Each of them are worth 25 points. So you get them all right, you get 100 points. Usually, passing is figuring out one of them. Wow. That's just how challenging it is. Um, 
And so I tell my students when I write my law school exams, and that's, this may be guiding my mentality. <laughs> I don't think they like that because most of them are not engineering students. They're used to, like, winning and getting 99s out of 100. Um, but I tell them, I write my exam for the workplace law nerd in you because <laughs> I'm writing it for somebody out there who I'm hoping is like that, someone who not only reads the cases, but they look at the notes afterwards and they spend time thinking about these issues and they come talk to me and they're wondering about things and they're looking stuff up on the internet about it and they're going well beyond what we're talking about in the class. I write the exam for those people. Now, many semesters, there's no one like that in the <laughs> class. Um, so then you have like a little grade curve that you have to look at. But yeah. in general, that's what I write the exam for. So they sit there and go, I didn't have time. I, I couldn't think of this. I, I said, I understand, you know, because I wrote it for that nerd. And every once in a while, that's another joy that I get. As I'm reading those exams and I'm kind of frustrated and I'm, I, I, I told them I sometimes refer to myself as a hunter. <laughs> I'm just hunting through that exam, hunting, praying, hoping to give them points. And I'm hunting, 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 and I don't find anything. And I'm pretty frustrated, Hunter. But every once in a while, I'm going through that exam, and I'm going, oh, this is great. They're getting it. They're seeing it. They see all these things. I have found my nerd for the semester, and that's really an enchanting experience uh, as a law professor, too. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be here, and I hope that uh, your audience uh, enjoys hearing about my kind of boring life as a law <laughs> professor and uh, spend some time thinking that it's somehow exciting for a few moments of their lives. That's great. Thanks. Thanks. For more information on Conversations with the Legal Academy, show notes, and additional episodes, go to law.uark.edu slash podcast, or you can find us at KUAF.com under the local and podcast menu. You can also listen to episodes or subscribe through iTunes or with your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others find us. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.